long. That being said, uh, it's a really a joy to be back with you all um, and uh, to be able to listen to a good number of the Stewardship Series messages. Some of them I'm here live and in person. Some of them I'm catching up with um, with it uh, during the week. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a real blessing just to, uh, just to be ministered to by um, the teaching ministries of uh, Pastor Ray, of course, but also uh, Joe and Levon. Really grateful for, for those two brothers and for using their gifts in teaching. Um, it's been a blessing to me. I really enjoyed it, guys, so good job. Um, I'm definitely forward to, uh, looking forward to uh, hearing from them more later on um, in, in this series. But this evening, I have uh, the privilege to speak uh, with you on a topic that has been near and dear to my heart uh, ever since I learned about it in college, and that is the topic of peacemaking. The topic of peacemaking. Sounds a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Right, peacemaking. Um, you know, even though I love what the Bible has to say about peacemaking, uh, let me humbly tell you that I'm not preaching this message to you from a position of mastery. I've not mastered this yet. I still make mistakes here. I still uh, still struggle here, but the reason why I wanted for us to be able to talk about peacemaking today is um, is because this is something that the Lord has prioritized in His Word. Right? We are supposed to all be peacemakers in our lives, and so this is something that we should all aspire to do, all aspire to grow in. And so, this sermon that I'm going to be preaching to you tonight is my attempt as a fellow brother in the Lord to teach you all what God has been teaching me in the hope or with the hope and aim that we all desire to walk alongside each other and grow with one another in this area. That we don't think that, oh, well, peacemaking is just for those other people, right? Or if the situation's right. But no, peacemaking is for all of us. And so because uh, this is something that um, is... Well, just a little more uncomfortable to think about and to talk about. Um, let's uh, particularly turn to our Lord and ask for extra grace this, uh, this evening. Uh, our Father, we're grateful to you for your word. And how your word gives us everything that we need so that we may strive to please you. And Lord, we know that at times this means that we find ourselves in uncomfortable situations where we might have to have conversations that we would rather not have, or uh, we have to think in ways that we're not accustomed to thinking. And so, Lord, we're grateful that you give us everything that we need in your word so that we can become more godly with your help. And Lord, we desire your help this evening well, we have a lot to go through, and um, I, know, I know people are tired, and so pray for extra grace uh, for us to, to have ears to hear. Um, may you be pleased, Lord, this evening as we look at your word. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to ask anyone whether they particularly enjoy conflict, chances are the majority of people will probably say they do not like conflict conflict. Whenever we enter a situation where we might face conflict, the main instinct that we have is self-preservation, to run away, to 
do whatever it takes to get away from the situation, to avoid it, to avoid any awkwardness or pain. Some of us might choose to fight head on. Let's just hit it where it's at. We're not going to worry about any kind of consequences. We're just going to deal with it. We're just going to break through it. But the majority of us want to escape. Right? We're like Rex from Toy Story. Right? Where confrontation comes up, we're like, oh, I don't like confrontation. However, something we often fail to consider is why. Why God might allow conflicts in our lives. And if we believe that God is sovereign and good, which he is, then he must have a purpose for the conflicts that require peacemaking. Now, even though the topic of peacemaking or conflict might be something that you would prefer to avoid this evening, we want to study this topic, even if it is difficult and, uh, and hard to wrestle through, because ultimately we trust God. Not because this is about us, but because it's about God. Because we trust him and because we love him, we do not want to waste our conflicts. We don't want to waste our conflicts. We don't want to think lowly of these grace-growing opportunities that our Lord has provided us by avoiding it altogether. Rather, we should strive to make the most of every opportunity the Lord gives to us to grow and to be conformed into the image of Christ. And in order to do that this evening, we're going to look at scriptures throughout the Bible that help us understand more about the fundamentals of peacemaking. And we're only covering fundamentals today. So this is super bare bones. Well, not bare bones, but super basic. There's definitely a lot of nuances that we could get into later, but we don't have that time uh, this evening. And so uh, if you guys want, we can definitely study this more in the future, but tonight it's just going to be the basics, or the basics. No nu- not a ton of nuance, just a lot of biblical basis, basics for this, okay? And so in order to, to do that, we're going to look at the need for peacemaking and also how we can pursue peacemaking. Super simple outline. The need for peacemaking and how we can pursue peacemaking. The first thing that we're going to look at is the need for peacemaking. And what we want to first recognize is that God grows us through conflict. God grows us through conflict. As I've already alluded to in our introduction, peacemaking and conflict are related to each other in the sense that there is no need for peacemaking if there is no conflict, right? There is no need for peacemaking if there is no conflict. There are are two sides of the same coin. However, you all already know from when you were younger, that conflicts exist. Whether it's fighting for the toys that you wanted with your siblings or with other children during playdates, daycare, or preschool, conflict started for many of us at a young age. Even if the conflict wasn't about toys. Maybe it was about food. Right? That's my piece of cake. That's my piece of candy. Right? Conflict could be about anything. Something as simple as, would you please just remember to put the toilet seat down? Conflict can be about anything. It doesn't have to be big. It can be small, too. And some of these conflicts, 
some of these conflicts, they can cause a real great amount of stress, anxiety. It can cause a lot of anger as well. Right? But what we want to recognize is that no matter how small the conflict is, no matter how big it is, it is important for us to recognize God's hand in the conflict. In Romans 8, 28 to 29, Paul writes this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become formed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. When it comes to Romans 8.28, we like Romans 8.28, right? God works everything for my good? Great. I love that, right? I, I, we love the assurance that, hey, everything works out. Right? We love that assurance. However, notice there is a condition. There is a condition for God working all things together for good. He works all things together for good for those who love him. And this is not a blanket promise that people who do not believe in God or who don't even love God can claim. They can't expect to claim, uh, to, to claim this promise. This is not theirs to own. This is for those who love God. The fact that God sovereignly works all things, all events in this world, all circumstances in this life, together for our good, is tied to, it is linked to the fact that we are his. That he has a purpose for us. You are not here by accident. You are here on purpose. And that means when you live life together with other people, the life that you have with those people, whether it's the good or the bad, is there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. What is that purpose? Verse 29, that we, be, that we become conformed to the image of his son. This is not something that we ourselves do, right? When it says here that we become conformed to the image of his son, right? That is a passive process, right? Yes, we bear our own responsibility in it to learn from it, but this is something that God is doing to us. He is conforming us into the image of his son. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, being conformed to the image of Christ means looking like Jesus. Do you know what Jesus looks like? Do you know who he is? Because when we talk about looking like Jesus, we're talking about being holy as he is holy. We're talking about having all sorts of temptation for sin and yet aiming not to sin, just like he did. Right, Hebrews 4, he was tempted in all things, but he himself did not sin. But we're aiming to look like that. Sounds scary, doesn't it? To try and live a perfectly holy life. And the reason why it sounds scary is because you all know we can't do that on our own. We don't have the ability to do that on our own. We can try. 
We might change our behavior every now and then and actually succeed for a little bit, for a week, maybe a month, if we're good. But after a while, the old habits creep right back in. Thanks be to God, though, that he gives us all the grace that we need in order to change, to become more like Christ. When you sin, when you struggle, when you fail, it's not the end for you. It's not the end for you. Even if you've failed in this area for the thousandth, thousandth time, it is not the end for you. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. It doesn't mean that you should take advantage of it, but you can't out-sin it either. Now, part of this process where we become more like Christ, it's a refining process, a process by which the sinful beliefs, thoughts, and habits are slowly exposed and changed so that we can become more like our Savior and we can glorify Him as we change. We all ought to change. The refining process, you can think about it in terms of how do you refine precious metals? You don't just dump a bunch of hand sanitizer on it and rub it and then, oh, it's clean. That's not how you, that's not how you, uh, to how you take care of those precious metals, right? If you want to purify those precious metals, what do you do? You put it in the fire. And you melt it down. You let those impurities bubble up to the top, skim it off, and there you have it. Pure, precious metal. The change process is like that refining process. It's for this reason. Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That word granted there can be better translated as graciously given. So if we were to put that definition back in there, it would say, for to you it has been graciously given for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you think of suffering as a grace gift from God on par with the salvation that he gives? More often than not, we do not think that way, right? More often than not, we don't think that way. When suffering comes into our lives, we are more likely to throw our hands up in the sky and say, why? Why are you letting this into my life? Right? Maybe you might even say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like, well, you're not Jesus, so don't do that. Right? But that could be the temptation, right? To believe that everything in the world is against us, that God has forsaken us. That's not true. And what we see here is that he has graciously gifted us an opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ. Why? Because it is a powerful testimony of the great worth of Christ. You know, earlier in Philippians 1, Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
Right? How can we say that, right, that our entire life is about Christ? And if we die, great. We get more of Christ. Right? How can we say that if it's not true that becoming more like Christ through suffering is a good thing for us? We couldn't say it. If suffering was bad for us, if it doesn't get us any closer to Christ, for us to say to live is Christ and die is gain, absolutely meaningless. As a result, the words that James writes in James 1 is particularly important for us to consider. Consider all joy, my brothers. Consider all joy. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. God does not cause us to go through trials because he likes switching things up on us or because he's deviously curious as to how we will respond to trials. He allows these trials into our lives so that we can grow, so that we can get pushed out of our comfort zones, so that we can learn to persevere through difficulty, and so that we will grow in the holiness that he gives. That's the refining process that God allows. God ultimately uses trials like conflict with other people to expose weaknesses in our own lives, to refine us in areas where we might not have even known that we had weaknesses. More can be said here, of course, but this is what we have to recognize, that God allows these things into our lives on purpose. It is not purposeless. God has a hand in it all. The second thing that we want to recognize is that God desires his people to be at peace. God desires his people to be at peace. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus, preaching on um, the sermon, I mean, he's preaching on the, uh, on, on the, the um, I was going to say, he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not what it's called. But he's preaching, at, uh, um, actually, that is the location place. Sorry, that is the location place, right? But he's preaching, and he's giving us the Beatitudes, right? The attitudes that Christians should be having. And one of those beatitudes is that we ought to be peacemakers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The reason why we are called sons of God when we are peacemakers is because we exemplify in our unity, in our relational peace with one another, the peace and unity that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? That proves that we are related to them. But not only that, not only that, but those who are peacemakers demonstrate the peace that God gives to those whose lives have been broken by sin when they follow after him. Think about it this way. Ever since sin entered into the world, everything as we know it has been broken. There was some unity for a time, but everything was broken because of sin. 
Cain killed his brother Abel. Brothers were killing, or a brother killed his brother just because his offering wasn't as good in God's eyes. The fracture goes international. Think about Genesis 11. Instead of going throughout the whole earth and filling it like they were supposed to, the people decided, hey, this place in the plain of Shinar seems pretty good. Let's just stay here. Let's stay here instead of doing what God told us to do. And let's build a tower. Right, let's build a really, really big tower. And if we big, build a big enough tower, maybe God will look at that and be like, oh, okay, I'll just let these people do whatever they want. But what did he do, though? He came down, he looked at it, he's like, eh, this is nothing. And then he scattered them. Right? He, not only did he scatter them, though, he fractured humanity even further by giving us language, by giving us culture. Now, I'm not saying that language and culture are bad, right? but it further fractures us. Right? If you try and talk to someone who doesn't speak the same language as you, it's pretty hard, isn't it? Right? Even trying to understand someone else's culture, it's pretty hard to do that. And yet, what the gospel does is it unifies. It brings those who are broken and scattered off, far off, and brings them near. It makes them one in Christ. And that's why peacemaking is such an important thing, because it exemplifies that unity and peace that God brings when, he, when we believe in the gospel. Right? It's for this reason that Jesus emphasizes the importance of even changing the way that we think about relationships later on in verses 21 through 24. Matthew 5. He says, he says, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Jesus wants us to see how our normal way of handling conflict is simply not good enough. How do you handle conflict? Do you clam up? Do you isolate yourself? Do you go grab a pint of ice cream? Turn on the TV? And eat your problems away? Do you avoid the person that you have conflict with because you don't want to talk to them? You don't want to think about them? You don't want to work through anything with them? Is that what you do? Are you really at peace if you do that? You might say, well, yeah. We're at peace because we're not fighting. But brothers and sisters, that's not peace not peace. That's peace faking. 
peacemaking. Essentially, we kind of have this attitude that the ancients had. Hey, I didn't murder nobody. I might not like them right now, but at least I didn't kill them. What is Jesus saying here? It's not good enough. The same standard of being guilty before the court for murder is applied to someone who is angry with his brother. Ooh. How many of you have been angry with your parents, your siblings, your friends? Right? All of us. And yet what it says here is if you've been angry with anyone, really, it's the same thing as murder. In God's eyes, the exact same thing. He sees it as a sin. Jesus raises the bar for all of us. Our anger is equivalent to murder. And even words of anger are seen here as something that are equivalent to murder too. That word raka is the same as calling someone empty-headed. Now, we may not go around saying empty-headed because we're lazy. Right? It's far easier to call someone a moron or an idiot. This is the same concept though. Right? Or even saying like, you're a fool. Right? Not in like a fun way, but like going after them. Like, you're a fool. You're dumb. Right? Those, those words of anger are enough to send us to hell. Why? Because sinful anger towards our brothers and sisters is anger, is hatred towards a fellow image bearer of God. You see, our standards are far too low. Resentful, passive-aggressive anger and explosive anger are just as unacceptable to God as murder because it is directed against someone who bears his image. And since this offense is so serious before God, Jesus essentially says in verses 23 to 24, if you're about to worship God, and you're about to, you know, let's, let's bring it into our modern context. If you're about to go into the worship hall, and you're about to sing songs of worship, and you remember, you recognize that you have unresolved conflict with somebody here at church, or maybe they go to another church, it is far better for you to leave, go find that person, and be reconciled than it is for you to stay here and worship God the outside, while on the inside, you're still holding on to your sin. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because James talks about that too, right, when he talks about the tongue, right? Lips of blessing and lips of cursing, how can it be that they're coming out of the same fountain? We tend to think that this is okay. That as long as I'm not outwardly angry towards anyone, as long as I'm not trying to hurt nobody, it's fine. But what we see here in the scriptures is it's not fine. Is there room for space? Do we need, to, do we need space and time to cool off sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's okay. 
but you still have to be committed to working things out. I used to believe that it wasn't okay, right? And so when the conflict was hot, I went straight in there. I was like, I don't care how much you feel about this, how, how badly you feel about this, we're going to work this out. I learned that that is not exactly the best way to go about it because when tempers are high, when we're not thinking clearly, right, we're not going to glorify God. So it's okay to have that distance, right, to have that cooling off period, but we have to go back. Right? Anyways, what Jesus is reminding us of here is that a heart that is truly focused on worshiping God will not forget that part of genuinely loving God is loving his people. Right? If you love God, you're going to love his people, which is why we can't hate each other, which is why we cannot be angry with one another, because if we love him, we're going to love each other. If we have no love for our brother or sister then we're not worshiping him in a way that honors him. Our worship will be marred by the sin that we hold back in our hearts. If we want to worship God with a clear conscience, we're going to have to deal with that sin that is in our hearts. One more element that we want to look at in terms of why we need peacemaking. God desires love to be the motivation. Love has to be the motivation when it comes to peacemaking. As we just discussed, our love for God is what will fuel our love for other people, which obviously is linked to being a peacemaker when we inevitably have conflict with one of our siblings in Christ. It is this truth that Jesus points to in Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Right? In this passage, a lawyer comes up to Jesus, and he's testing him. He's not really interested in Jesus' answer. He just wants to try and catch Jesus, emphasizing a law that doesn't matter. And so he says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, even though he does say that you love your neighbor as yourself is second, really what we're looking at, what we're thinking about here is, if, if it helps, a tiered list. And it's 1A, love God, 1B, love people. It's still number one, but you got to love God and you got to love people, right? They're the same thing. Loving God will naturally flow into loving other people. Yeah, I know some of us jokingly say sometimes that we don't love people, right? That we don't like people. But and it's okay to joke like that sometimes, right? But really, what we ought to be, what we, what we really should be doing is loving other people because that is the sign that we are gods. That is the sign that we are gods, that we're his. Not all of us are gods, but that we belong to him. It's hard, right? It is hard. We've seen that in numbers, right? All they had to do if you want to think about it this way, right? If, if these two commands can basically sum up all of the Old Testament law and all the prophets, if these two commands were the only two commands that the Israelite people had, had to obey and keep, it should have been easy for them to get through the wilderness. Right? But as we've seen repeatedly in numbers, they repeatedly fail to either love God or love each other. And for that reason, they continue to circle, they continue to circle, and they continue to circle. 
And yet, even if it's hard, God's desire for us remains unchanged. He gives us the grace that we need to love each other, so much so that Jesus says that our love for one another should be just like the love that he shows us. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Not only that, but the radical, our, our radical love for one another should be such that whenever people see how much we love each other, they'll know that we are Christ's disciples. And so you see, we have to examine ourselves. We have to think about it. Is our love for each other like this? Are we willing to be at peace with each other? Or would we just rather hold on to our grudges and our prejudices against each other? Our answer to this question is important for us to consider because the Apostle John writes later in 1 John 3.24, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he gave a commandment to us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. That means we stay in Christ. We know by this, that we love each other, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he gave us. If we do not love each other, there may be a chance that we don't belong to God at all. There may be a chance that no matter how much you give, no matter how faithful you are at showing up on a Friday night and on a Sunday morning, that maybe, no matter, and maybe you even serve too. Even if you do all these outward things that make you look like a good Christian, maybe you're not. Because the key identifier that you love God and you love people is missing. If you are willing to withhold love from a brother or sister for a wrong that they've committed against you, whether it was on purpose, whether it was by accident, or even just a failure to meet our expectations, we have to take a step back and think about it. Do I actually belong to God? Or am I just a religious person doing religious things, living for my own self? We have to consider that. Maybe all we need is a small course correction. I don't want to scare any of you. (laughs) Maybe all we need is a small course correction. Maybe we just need to repent. We'll be fine. But I also don't want to Make it too easy for you either. If you really struggle to love other people, you got to think about that. Are you actually the Lord's? Because if you are, you'll love others. You see, peacemaking, it ought to be a huge priority for Christians because we're one in Christ. We're one in Christ. We are, those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are one body. How can we hate one another and exist in the same body? We can't. We can't. There is no autoimmune disease in the body of Christ. 
We cannot turn against each other. And so we must love one another. Peacemaking is not something that is nice to have. But it is something that we desperately need to have in the life of any church. You don't have to be here at SFBC. You could be elsewhere. But no matter where you go, you ought to be at peace with fellow believers. Now that we've talked about the doctrinal reasons for why it's important, for why peacemaking is important, let's talk about the practical things, how we can pursue peacemaking. I know I spent a lot of time in the front half, so I'm going to go a little faster, but now let me, again, nuance our discussion by saying that sin makes things complicated. Right? So what we're going to talk about here in terms of practically pursuing peace with other people is going to be very general. It's going to be very broad. Right? There are going to be times where uh, you're going to encounter some conflict, and what I'm saying here is not going to apply exactly because there are nuances. Right? So we're just going through the general stuff. The nuances, we can still work through that. The scriptures still talk about that, but we don't have time to cover it all this evening. Okay, so anyways. Um, yeah, this is just the basics. As you're learning this, you're going to make mistakes. I still make mistakes. I still accidentally inflame tensions rather, and, and keep the tensions going rather than putting them out. It's just my sin nature. It happens. Right? If that happens to you when you're trying to pursue peace with other people, do not be discouraged. But remember that God gives greater grace. In fact, it's, this is really encouraging, 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That's a lot of everys, isn't it? But God gives you all the grace that you need so that even when it's hard, even when you don't want to do it, you can. Even when it feels like it is impossible to obey God, it is impossible to please him, God gives you every grace that you need so that you can do it. You are not alone. The Holy Spirit, whom God has given you in salvation, empowers you to do that. Every conflict that you will ever encounter in your life gives you two choices. We are either, number one, going to choose to live by 1 Corinthians 10.31 and seek to glorify God in all things, or Number two, look to glorify and please ourselves. Every conflict that we encounter gives us that opportunity to either glorify God or worship ourselves. So which are we going to choose? Let me tell you, it's hard to strive to glorify God in every single situation. It won't always feel great. And sometimes you're going to wonder, was it actually worth it for me to glorify God rather than to let this person have a piece of my mind? Let me tell you, 
you will not regret obeying the Lord in the long run. He's doing something. He's working in us. He's growing us so that we can trust him more. He's giving us every grace that we need. Right? And if he is doing that, we can trust him. Right? That being said, okay, we ought to determine, number one, to glorify God. And this is the most important thing in terms of practical application of, of pursuing peace with others. You have to determine in your mind that you are going to glorify God. Yes, I know I'm repeating what I just said, right? But I cannot say this enough. I cannot say this enough. If there is something broken between us and a brother or sister in Christ, we must determine in our hearts that even if they don't want to reconcile, I'm going to strive to glorify God, not so that I can say, I'm holier than you are. I'm trying to make peace, and you ain't. That's not the goal. But the goal is, I don't care what this looks like. I'm going to strive to the best of my ability to please our Lord. And we have to determine to do that. We have to determine to do that. We can even see that in Colossians 3, 16 to 17. Oops, sorry. Colossians 3, 16 to 17. Right? As the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, that causes for life change to happen. So that, in, so that in whatever we do, whether it be word or deed, we're doing it all in the name of our Lord Jesus. We're all doing it for him. We're all doing it for his glory. Not so that people can say, wow, you're such a good person, I would never be able to forgive like that. No, that's not. That's not the point. We're not trying to puff ourselves up. We're trying to point other people to the Savior and say, no, the reason why I can respond differently is because I am a sinner saved by grace. And because I am saved by grace, I can respond differently than I normally would. I'm able to put off the old man and put on the new man. I'm able to, instead of dwelling in my hatred, dwelling in my resentment, I am able to instead put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity that allows for the word of Christ to dwell in me richly. See, what we cannot miss here is that the link between our salvation and how that salvation leads us to glorify God is evident in our words and in our actions. So a commitment to glorify God, first and foremost, is one of the most important things that we can pursue in peacemaking. The second thing is that we must examine ourselves. Okay, we must examine ourselves. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, that we have to be mindful of how we judge other people. Normally, we look, people use this verse of Matthew 7 to say, well, Jesus says here, Jesus says here, do not judge so that you will not be judged. So don't judge me. Don't you dare judge me. Jesus said, don't judge. That's not what he said. Right? You look at it in the context, that's not what he said. He says, be mindful of the standard by which you are judging other people. Now as, uh, and it's because sometimes it reveals something about us. Right? Sometimes it reveals something about us. Consider whether our grievance against another person is actually a sin issue. Sometimes it's not sin. Sometimes it's preferences. 
Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. Sometimes it's because we read into what they were saying to us or what they were doing. Maybe there was a violation of our preferences and the other person didn't know that it was our preference for something to look a certain way. And you know, if what we see as we're evaluating what's going on in our conflict is a violation of preference, then that's where 1 Peter 4, 8 would apply. Right? That, we, that we seek to abound in love because love covers a multitude of sin. Proverbs 17, 19, I'm sorry, 17, 9 says that he that covers transgression seeks love. Right? Can you let it go? Right? Is what happened something that you can let go? Can you let it slide? Is it a one-off? Is it not that important to pursue right now? And a lot of times we start fights and it's kind of like, was it really worth it though? Was it really worth it to start that fight? Sometimes we do have to talk about things more. But in either case, right, in either case, we have to examine, we have to start with us. The easiest thing to do is start with the other person, right? Let me tell you, this is what they did. No, start with yourself first. Look at the person staring back at you in the mirror. Deal with yourself first. Sometimes we could benefit from having other people come in, right? We share the situation with them, try and avoid sharing names so that you can... uh, you can protect the identity of the person that you're having conflict with. And sometimes we can benefit from that because outside counsel can help us to see whether we're thinking about things too strongly or not. There's, of course, a chance that whoever's helping us might be wrong too, right? They're operating off our point of view. They're operating off of um, the limited information that we've provided or maybe they don't understand the situation well. So there is a chance that asking another person to help us think through it and processing it could make it worse but Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the way of an ignorant fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Similarly, in Proverbs 18, 1, we, we see he who separates himself, right? If you isolate yourself, you seek your own desire, he breaks out in dispute against all sound wisdom. Right? We need outside counsel. Just a few verses down in Proverbs 18 and 17, we see this. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. There is wisdom in bringing in others from the outside to help us examine ourselves because we can easily deceive ourselves. We may think that we are right. We may think that we have evaluated the situation correctly and the fault is completely on the other person, but there is always a possibility that we are wrong. I can tell you this from experience. I cannot tell you how many times I've been up in arms about something and when I consult my discipler or other older brothers in the faith, they tell me, Roger, you need to calm down. You need to back off. It's not that important. And we need outside counsel. We need outside counsel. Because sometimes 
we're just so caught up in our own emotions about it that we can't see objectively. We can't even allow for someone to maybe make a mistake. Right? I know that person. That wasn't an accident. That was on purpose. He was trying to get a rise out of me, and he got it. So he won't get what's coming to him. That can be how we think, right? That was no accident. You did that on purpose. Here I come. Right? You won't get what's coming to you. But, but, what if we're wrong and you started a fight for nothing? We, ought, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. We need to start with us first. We need to see, did I mess up? What did I do? Did I sin in this? And also, we have to take responsibility. Right? We have to take responsibility. It's far easier for us to place the blame on others, especially when they've truly done something that we believe is wrong. But we cannot forget that the way that we've responded to them in their wrongdoing is just as important to God as their wrongdoing. Okay, the way that you respond, the way that we respond to being sinned against is just as important to God as the sin that the other person committed against us. Chances are, if someone has sinned against you, you've sinned against them in return. And perhaps we've demonstrated impatience towards them. Maybe we begin to shorten our answers towards them. We treat them roughly, abruptly, unkindly. Maybe we've complained about them behind their back and slandered them towards people who don't even really have any knowledge of the situation or a part of the solution. They don't even play a part in the solution. We're just slandering them. Whatever the case may be, we have to remember that we are fully capable of sinning against other people, especially when they're sinning against us. And for this reason, it is important for us to confess our sins before the Lord and take responsibility for our own sins, for our part in the matter. James 4 says this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. The key takeaway from these verses is that sin does not happen out, uh, or your sin does not happen because of things outside of you. Your sin does not happen because things that are outside of you. Nobody makes you sin, right? Nobody makes you sin. You might be thinking, you might be sitting in your chair right now. You're thinking, uh-uh, Pastor Rogers, that ain't true because this person said this to me and that triggered me. And I'm saying to you, no. They provided an occasion for you to respond in sin, there was a temptation to sin, but the choice to sin was yours and yours alone. The choice to sin was yours and yours alone. Sin is found in our own hearts. It is something that we do. Nobody can make you do it. 
that you can endure. You can persevere. But we often choose ourselves to sin. You see, that word lust, it's not sexual lust. It could be, but it's not exactly that word. It's the general word for lust. It's desire. These aren't just any old desires. These are desires that have morphed into idolatrous desires. They've gone from desire to need. I need this. I must have it. Right? It comes need to demand even. You can call them idols. You can call them ruling desires. You can call them whatever you want. But what this is pointing at is that deep in our hearts, they've become sinful desires that lead to fighting, that lead to quarreling in order to get what we want. What do you want? Think about that. In your conflicts, whatever comes to mind, what did you want? What did you want? Did you want to accomplish peace? Did you want to defend your honor? Did you want to win? What did you want? You got to think about that. Because those are the things that lead to quarreling and fighting, quarreling and conflict. See, our conflicts are a result of our desires, our preferences, our wants coming into conflicts with other people's desires, preferences, and wants. The source of our conflicts come from within ourselves. And yes, other people do play a factor, but they only provide the occasion for you to sin. They don't force you to sin. So whenever we're in conflict with somebody else, even if the conflict is 99% that other person's fault, we still bear responsibility for how we dealt with it. With how we dealt with it. If we've done well, praise the Lord. But if not, well, then we need to own up to it. We need to take responsibility for it. All right, confess our sins to the Lord. And if we've sinned against the other person in a very public ways, then we also need to confess our sin to them too. All right, if you were just thinking evil thoughts about another person, don't go up to them and say, hey, you know, I was thinking evil thoughts towards you. I'm really sorry about that. Or right, this is like, that's weird. Don't, don't do that, okay? You can confess that to the Lord. But if you've said something, or you've been spreading rumors, or maybe not rumors, but you've been slandering that person towards other people, polluting their view of that person when they have nothing to do with the solution. You got to ask for forgiveness there too. Okay, we all contribute to the cultures of our relationships with, with others. Okay, next thing we got to do is pursue peace. Sorry, I know we're almost out of time. We're like almost, almost out of time. I'm going to go faster. Okay, pursue peace. Okay, Matthew 5 already made it pretty clear. Right? Jesus' priority for us is to pursue peace with one another. Matthew 18 gives us some instructions for when there's sin, well, there's a lot of sin involved too. But there is a component of pursuing peace uh, that does not necessarily require church discipline, but it could go that route if it really is a big sin problem that we see. But if it's just a preference thing, then we can work it out without that, without church discipline being on the table. Now, in his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy offers the following acronym to help us understand how we can pursue peace. And that acronym is PAUSE. 
and pause. P, P stands for preparation. Basically, before you go talk to the other person about whatever you see, you want to prepare. Our Proverbs 14.8 and Proverbs 14.22 reminds us that we are to act with wisdom in life. And that means that we are to act according to loving kindness and truth. And so if we're going to do that, we have to prepare to think like that right? and to approach situations with loving kindness and truth. So we want to do our best to plan ahead of time. Know what you're going to say. Know what biblical principles and biblical passages you're going to bring up. Pray. Depend on the Lord in this context. Chances are you're going to do your best to prepare beforehand and there's still going to be an aspect where it will not go according to plan. Right? It happens. That's okay. Still prepare though because it helps. Mistakes happen. We're still sinners. We're going to fail. Okay, so don't let that discourage you. We have to do our best to desire to glorify God and to love our brother and sister. Okay, so we want to plan, make sure that we can try and accomplish those aims of glorifying God and loving our brother or sister. The A stands for affirm relationships. Right? If we were just to go after each other, and just point out all the sins in each other's lives. We, we might even be looking at other people and be like, you don't really love me. You're just trying to fix me. If you really love me, you would actually care about me instead of just pointing out all my flaws and just demanding that I change. Right? We want to affirm relationships. Affirm relationships. If we ought to be known by our love for one another, we should not pursue peace with other people because well, they make my life difficult, and so I must retaliate. I need to put them in their place. I need to correct them harshly right, so they can stop burdening me with all their problems. Right, or we don't want to pursue peace as a result or as a, uh, as a desire to punish them either. We pursue peace because we love them. Right? So affirm that love to them, even as you might have to tell them some hard truths. Proverbs 18, 19 says, A brother offended is harder to win over than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Cities fall. Right? Cities fall. It's not that hard to make a city fall. Right? Especially nowadays, right, with weapons and everything like that. But back in the ancient days, it was really, really hard. Right? You had to do a lot in order to get a city to fall. And what what, what Proverbs 18 19 is, is bringing out here is as hard as it is to knock down a walled city, it's even harder. It's even harder to win over someone that you've offended. So affirm relationships. Pursue them in love. Check yourself. Are you wanting to confront them because you love them? Or are you wanting to confront them because you're mad at them. You want to get even. You want to prove your point. Do you even care about the relationship? Or do you just want to lash out? What do you want? What's your aim? U stands for understand interests. We want to make sure that we fully understand all the different 
different interests that are at play in a disagreement. If we are going to genuinely pursue peace with others in a way that honors God, we have to remember that the reason why conflicts exist in the first place is because we have multiple interests, multiple desires competing against each other for primacy, for prominence. So, in what way can we glorify God as we seek to work together toward a common interest? Right? In what way can we model what Christ modeled for us in, the Philippians, in Philippians 2, who, though he was God, did not consider himself anything, but he humbled himself, not seeking his own interests, but for the interests of others. Hard to think that way, isn't it? When we're in conflict, we don't want to serve other people. We only want to serve ourselves. As we're trying to glorify God, we actually have to be thinking, how can I serve the other person? How can I serve the other person? Are you praying for them? And not in precatory prayers, but are you praying for them in love? Do you love them enough to pray for them? Are you willing to die to yourself and serve others instead of insisting that you live for yourself? S stands for search for creative solutions, especially if a conflict is not about a sin issue but a preference issue. Like, should we sell the family car? Should we sell the family house? Should we keep the family dog? Right. If it's not a sin issue, it's good to work together to find a creative solution to our differences. And don't just find one solution. This is the best solution. Right? Just put them all out on the table. Work together to find the solutions that might work for everybody. Right? And it might not all come out in one particular decision, but maybe the pieces together can form one greater one. Right? But seek to have creative solutions. Search for it. E, evaluate options objectively and reasonably. Right? Again, seek to serve others. Right? If we're seeking to serve others and we're seeking to love the Lord, right, then we're no longer living for ourselves. We're no longer seeking out our own desires and interests alone, but we're seeking the other person's desires as well. And in that way, we can humble ourselves, right? First Peter 5 says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want that grace, you have to humble yourself. Seek to serve other people. Seek to serve the Lord. If we do that, then God will be on your side. But if you're proud, well, he's opposed to you. There are a lot of other factors that are involved as well. Sin complicates things, and we may even reach a stage where, you know, uh, even if it didn't start as a sin issue, we're going to have to go to church discipline. Um, but again, for our purposes tonight, we're just covering the basics. Right? So these are just some general general steps for us to, on, in terms of how to pursue peace. Finally, finally, mercifully, we want to leave the rest up to God. Leave the results up to God. Ultimately, even if we were successful in pursuing peace 
or able to lovingly confront and restore somebody, things can change, right? Haven't you, haven't you had an experience in your life where maybe you walked away from a conflict and you thought it was great, but then when you got home and you thought about it a little bit more, you're like, uh, I don't like that. No, I'm still mad. I still don't like what happened. Or, or maybe that happened to you, right, where you thought you made nice with the, with the other person, and you're like, cool, great, we're good, we're good. And then they come back, and they're just like, hey, you owe me an apology. It's like, what? I thought we were all right. What are you talking about? That's the situation. We just got to leave the results up to God. You cannot, right, we cannot change a person's heart. We are not capable of changing another person's heart. The only person who can change someone's heart is God. And so we can only point them back to God and strive to encourage everyone involved to try and glorify God in everything because of the gospel that has saved us all and brought us together. But ultimately, heart change is a work of God that he does in the lives of individuals. So no matter what situation we find ourselves, we actually have to humbly leave the results all up to God. In Romans 12, 17 to 21, Paul recognizes this reality, and he reminds us that we are all responsible for doing, as God's people, our best to be at peace with everyone. Right? Do your best to be at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge. Instead, you're leaving the room for the wrath of God. And some of you might be saying, like, I'll leave room for the wrath of God. I want that other person to get what's coming to them. But do you really, though? Right? Because if you love them, do you want them to experience the wrath of God, the vengeance of God? You shouldn't. If you do, again, maybe we need to look at ourselves a little bit more. Right? But we can trust God is the point of this. Right? You can trust the results up to God. He will take care of it. Do not repay evil with good. Do not repay evil with good. Trust the Lord. If we believe in God's sovereignty like we say we do, then you're going to have to leave it in his hands. And it's hard to do because we all want quick decisions. We all want quick change. But you've got to leave it in his sovereign hands, if you believe that he actually is sovereign, that he actually is good, that he actually is loving. You leave it up to him. Even if we do our best to make peace with everybody, there are times where it just doesn't work. Right? That the other person is not willing to forgive us. That's okay. You leave that to the Lord. You do your best to be faithful to the Lord, to be at peace with everyone. And at least you can say, I've done my best. I've done my best to glorify him. Sometimes we are able to be at peace with other people, but there are going to be, uh, there are going to be consequences too. Okay, consequences do not mean that you're not forgiven, but consequences are just a real part of life. Uh, I've referenced that before. If, if I borrow 20 bucks from you and I don't pay you back for 20 years, right, and then I finally give you your 20 bucks back, and then the next day I say, hey, can I get 400 from you? You're not going to do it, right? Why? Because I've not proven myself faithful. 
right? So you've forgiven me. You've forgiven me of my debt, but there are consequences. You still ain't going to loan me no money unless you're really that gracious and you have that much. So forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences. Sometimes consequences exist. Sometimes you're going to have to earn that trust back. Right? If you broke it, you might have to earn it back. It's not going to be the same right away. But that doesn't mean that something is wrong between, uh, or something's wrong in your fellowship. It just means that you have to work that much harder to pursue love. Anyways, this evening, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. And you know what? There is really so much more that we can, we can talk about. I left a lot on the cutting room floor. I've said this a decent amount tonight. Sin makes things complicated. Right? Sin makes things really, really complicated. So the pursuit of peace and the different scenarios that will come up in our lives, they're going to look different. Not all going to be the same, but the basic principles are here. Our love for God and our relationship with him is going to be the thing that drives our desire to be at peace with other people. And it is possible to do it. So I hope that tonight just kind of whets your appetite for this, gets you ready to uh, and excited to maybe study this a little bit more. If you would like to study this more, I encourage you to take a deeper look at some of the texts that we've covered this evening. But I also recommend the following books to you. The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's a thick book, so I wouldn't blame you if you chose to go with the Peacemaker Student Edition, which is way shorter. Um, still helpful, though. Uh, the principles are still really good. Uh, Pursuing Peace by Robert D. Jones. Uh, if You Bite and Devour One Another. This is an exposition on Galatians 5, which is really helpful. And also Communication and Conflict Resolution. Right? So it teaches you communication basics, and it teaches you conflict resolution. It's actually the shortest book of them all. So maybe start with that first. I don't know. If you guys want to have a book club on this, I'd totally be down. Let's do that. All right. Um, anyways, those are some, these are just some resources for, uh, for uh, further study if you wish to study peacemaking more. Um, let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for your loving kindnesses towards us. Uh, we recognize, Lord, that because of the fall, because of sin in our own uh, hearts and in our lives, it is really, really easy for us to, uh, to come into conflict with other people. We pray, Lord, that as a result of tonight, you, you help us to be convinced even more of how even though conflict is inevitable, it doesn't need to be something that breaks the fellowship and the bonds of the body of Christ. Rather, it can be a means by which we grow more and more into the image of your Son. And so we pray that these peacemaking opportunities that come our way, that we would not despise them, but, oh Lord, we would rather uh, embrace them as grace gifts from you that help us to become more like Jesus. We pray that you deepen our love for you so that when it does come to loving other people, we will, even if it's hard. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, some discussion questions for you guys when you break off into your discussion groups. Number one, how does the connection between loving God and loving people challenge or encourage you in thinking about conflicts when they come up? Number two, why is it often difficult to examine ourselves well when we are in conflict with others? Right? We can examine ourselves, but sometimes not well.
Right? So why is it difficult? And number three, why might it be hard to leave the results up to God in a peacemaking situation? These are our discussion questions for this evening. Thank you so much for your attention. 